from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Delaney Hall, filling in for Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Some of my friends told me, sweet, oh, be careful, you'll be questioned very soon. So <laughs> it is not safe for me to stay there. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audible artifacts we find all over the world. That is why I need to leave the country. We're like oral archaeologists. We dig through the airwaves and the internet, gather up the good stuff, and spin it all together for you each week on ReSound. In Iraq, it was a really good, good life. This woman moved from Iraq to Detroit in 2006. My father used to be a very nice singer. And he moved from Sudan to Omaha in 2003. We were sitting outside and we heard those bombing and shooting stuff. My dad was like, just let's leave. And she, along with her family, left behind her entire life in Afghanistan and relocated to Amarillo in 2005. They and thousands of others left their homes and traveled to the other side of the world in search of new places to settle. They moved from the warm deserts and tall mountains of the Middle East and North Africa to the cold cities of the American Rust Belt and the big plains of Texas. The details of their stories might be particular, but the arc is the same. So today on ReSound, we explore the idea of here and there, starting with a story by producers Ann Hepperman and Kara Oler. Ann and Kara have been collecting the stories of refugees for a project that they call One Thing. They ask people who've left their homelands to talk about the one thing that they brought with them, whether it's an object or a story or a song, to remind them of where they came from. In From Burma to Indianapolis, a man describes a poem that he brought from home. Burma is like midnight, dark. In 1988, the uprising started in Rangoon, capital city of Burma. Thousands of heavily armed troops are patrolling Rangoon and other major cities in Burma tonight. I was a high school teacher. Yes. Everywhere. Uprising demonstrations. These scenes show students and Buddhist monks shouting anti-government slogans. The army took power. Moments later, they were fired upon at point-blank range by these soldiers backed up by armored personnel carriers. The army rules as they like. No human rights at all. Some people went underground, fled the country and taking arms, you know. Some people. Uh, established Chin National Front. It is fighting for democracy and fighting against the military government. Some people, we keep staying in cities and doing our jobs, like high school teachers, but having connection with those friends, underground people. One day, I met one of my friends who went underground. He was a very handsome boy before. Now he is very thin and very weak. Why? Because he is in the jungle doing something against the military government. He went underground. He took out of his bag a book 
published by the Chin National Front. Oh, that book was so, so impressive to me, and they requested me to write a poem. The same night, I composed a poem. I'm a poet as well. The title of that poem is Victory with Identity. Victory with Identity. So would you like me to read out for you or what? It is like this. One of my friends I met one morning. Firmly his hands shaped mine, his face smiling. Surprise and joy, no words I could start. Oh, my friends, wake up. Let us fight this common foe. Let us fight against this military rule, the common foe for everybody. When I wrote this poem, my pen name was Midnight. It is safe for me instead of using my real name. But the military personnel have a clue that I must be the author. Some of my friends told me, Sui, uh, be careful. You will be questioned very soon. So <laughs> it is not safe for me to stay there. That is why I need to urgently leave the country. When I told my kids I have to leave, they came to me and they embraced me. And don't go. I told them, okay, I'll come back very soon because I had a great hope that Burma would get changed. But unfortunately, things got worse and worse and worse. I fled the country in 1999 and a Bible college in Cincinnati accepted me. So I was so, so fortunate to come to America. We, the Chin people, are known as Christian people. In Burma, you know, we can't practice Christianity as we like. But in America, we worship with full freedom. In 2000, a lot of Chin people came to Indianapolis. So I came to Indianapolis every Sunday. And when we worship together with them, oh, I feel home so much. Every Sunday we worship, choir singing, prayer, sermon. And the Sunday school kids show their talents very lovely. Every Sunday we pray for Burma. My wife and my kids came over to Indianapolis June 3rd, 2005. Whenever we have times, we parents teach our kids about what is happening in Burma. So sometimes I need to tell my kids about my background. So this poem, once a month, I read it to them. Are you changed by somebody else other than yourself? Oh, brothers, let us fight against this foe. I think it is still valid to what is happening in Burma now.
I live in this free land in America, but I still miss my country. So I would like to go back home and do something good for our country. So I pray for that. The last stanza of my poem is like this: Change is the process of this world and of nature. You know, so Burma never get changed, but I still hope that it will change. That was from Burma to Indianapolis by Anne Heberman and Kara Oler. It first aired on Weekend America. Anne and Kara interviewed six refugees living in six American cities, and all of the people they talked with shared incredible, harrowing stories about their experiences. Overwhelmed and humbled by the openness of the people they spoke with, Anne and Kara wanted to do something more with the interviews. So they paired up with Jason Cady, who's a composer, and they turned the individual voices into a chorus. They thought it would help convey the power and universality of the refugees' experiences. So Jason took the interviews, and he manipulated each voice. First he tuned it so that it fell within a certain musical range, and then he quantized it so that it fell on a 4-4 beat. So in the hands of Jason, Swee's voice, which you just heard, was transformed from this. I fled the country in 1999. Into this. I fled the country in 1999. Once all the voices were processed, Jason began to layer them, uniting their narratives into a kind of song. I talked with Jason, and he walked me through his compositional process. Okay, so I've opened up the file that has all the voices in the first movement. So there's six voices in all, but I rarely had all six at the same time. And I um, tried to have a, a full choral spectrum. So there was one speaker in particular that had a, a really rich bass voice. My name is Malakal Gwak. So I used him a lot. We had a lot of men that were more in baritone or tenor ranges. My name is Omar Abdelman. I'm from Somalia. I'm Arkan Agustin from Iraq. My name is Sui. Uh, that's my nickname. And since we had so many of them, I used them a little bit less, and we didn't have as many women. My name is Lena. My name is Maria Sherali. My parents left Burundi in 1972. So I tended to use them a little bit more so that I, I would have a, a full spectrum. My name is Maria Sherali. My full name is Afghanistan. The way this opens is they're, they're all just identifying themselves. They're saying their name and something about themselves. So Sui comes in. My name is Sui. Uh, that's my nickname. On the notes, G, C, C, and then C, C, A, B, G. But then at, at the same time as he's saying that, another voice is on E. My name is Lena. My name is Maria Sherali. And another voice is on C and A. My name is Omar Abdelman. I'm from Somalia. So all the voices are kind of alternating there between uh, C major and A minor. My name is Maria Sherali. I'm from Somalia. 
beautiful and it's all the voices harmonize with each other I you see a mark field I that was an excerpt from Chorus of Refuge by Anne Hepperman, Kara Oler, and composer Jason Cady. Chorus of Refuge is actually an installation in which each voice is broadcast to a different radio simultaneously. It was presented at the Third Coast Filmless Festival in March. To see pictures or to hear the entire piece, visit thirdcoastfestival.org and click on ReSound. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival. I'm Delaney Hall, filling in for Gwen Maxi. Today we're listening to stories that explore the idea of here and there. Somehow it was always raining when we got on the bus. So every year I always associate those rainy August days with having to leave home again. Next, a complicated story about culture, power, identity, and belief. Between 1954 and 1996, the Mormon Church sponsored a program for American Indian children. It was called the Indian Student Placement Program, and it had two aims. The first was to provide Native children with an education, and the second was to help the church fulfill one of its central prophecies. According to Mormon teachings, American Indians are descendants of the ancient House of Israel, and church members have a responsibility to help bring them back to the kingdom of God. More than 20,000 children from over 60 tribes were baptized and enrolled in the placement program. For some, it was a chance to get away from the stress of reservation life. But for others, it was a complete denial of their identity. For everyone, it was a life-changing experience. Producer Kate Davidson spent a year talking with people involved in the placement program. Here's the story that resulted. It's called Saints and Indians. To this day, August is the month I dread the most because that was the month that I always left to go on placement. Somehow it was always raining when we got on the bus. There was floods. So every year I always associate those rainy August days with having to leave home again. This is a true story about an educational program that annually sends several hundred Mormon Indian children from the reservations of Arizona and New Mexico to temporary foster homes in Utah, where the children spend the school year as members of non-Indian Mormon families. My name is Rose Danetsosi, and I was 11 years old when I went on the placement program. My dad would tell us that the traditional way of life was going to eventually phase out. He says, I want you sitting in nice offices where it's air-conditioned in the summer and warm in the winter and, and be receiving a paycheck for it. We always left at night 
being the oldest boy in my family, I always tried to put on a brave face and I swore I would never cry. That never happened. I, I cried every time when I got in my seat and uh, thankfully all the lights were off, so I just sat there. And then we rode the bus all night. When I woke up, we were on the freeways, and I just remember seeing all these bridges that crossed over, under, and seeing it, it was like, how do people know which way they're going? How can you tell? And I felt like I was entering another world where people seemed to be hurrying everywhere. Arrival at the Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, marks the end of the first stage of their journey. And so in an area where just a hundred years ago, the cry, the Indians are coming, sent fear into the hearts of the settlers. Now the same cry brings joyful anticipation to families and homes throughout Utah. I'm Sharon Muirbrook. Our family settled here in North Ogden and settled along the Wasatch Front. Uh, when the pioneers came to Utah, and so we've always just had love for the for the Indians. My name is Dory Peters. I'm from originally from Red Valley, Arizona. They called my name, and I said, "Oh no!" My my foster mother came up and gave me a hug, and blonde hair, you know, brown eyes, and their kids were just blonde hair. They were the whitest kids I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I was assigned the topic this morning concerning the Lamanites. The Lord has, through his prophets, predicted their destiny, that they would fall and that they would then be recovered. They used to tell us that we were a chosen race. They used to call us the Lamanites. But because we didn't listen to God, we were cursed and we, we came out with dark skins and black hair. Let me quote two or three scriptures in preface. Behold, these shall dwindle in unbelief. And it came to pass that I beheld that after they had dwindled in unbelief, they became a dark, loathsome, and a filthy people, full of idleness and all manner of abominations. Again. My name is Clarence R. Bishop. I was director of the Indian Placement Program. You've heard about our Book of Mormon. Our Book of Mormon talks about the day of the Lamanite, when the church would make a special effort to build and reclaim a fallen people. And some people will say, well, fallen from what? I mean, they aren't fallen. They have their own culture. They have their own this. They have their own that. But according to the Book of Mormon, they originally had the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would tell us, now it's your job to go home and to teach your family about the church and to help them understand it so they can, they didn't say so they can be saved, so that they can blossom like the rose too.
My name is Laura Brown. I came from a family of one older brother, six younger, and one younger sister. And I remember herding sheep and herding cattle for my grandmother. And I remember a lot of drinking on my dad's part and physical abuse because of that. Later on, my mother told us that when she heard of the placement program, she saw a way out for her children. My husband is he's drinking a lot. He didn't think about those kids. I do. I wanted to raise good. That's why. Growing up, we would always watch white people from a distance. And I always was kind of curious and see how do they live. Do they live like us? Obviously, they don't, (laughs) which I found out. The first thing I noticed was the smell. Everything smelled different. I mean, I miss the the cedar of the reservation, the sage and the rain and the the smell of my grandfather doing his ceremonies and so forth. And in the white man's world, it was everything was, it smelled like plastic. It smelled like uh, metal. I was amazed at their beautiful home and their yard was just beautiful and they had a pomegranate tree and uh, grapes and flowers and a lawn and (laughs) it was just beautiful to me. I shared a room with my foster sister, Debbie. I think we vacuumed every day or every other day and it always seemed like, I don't understand why we have to vacuum. There's no dirt on the floor. And I remember being aware of all the things that they did that we didn't do and all the things that they did that I liked. How they said family prayer together before they went to bed. And everybody got a hug and kissed each other goodnight. And I thought, this is what I'm going to do when I have a family. He seemed to not have a very high esteem Um, In fact, just to put it kind of bluntly, Dory didn't seem to even like his culture to be an Indian. Um, When we'd have the Order of the Arrow come and do the dances, the Indian dances and things like that, he would go in the other room. He didn't even want to be around it. Or we'd see other Indians and he would turn and go the other way. I think when I was growing up, I... I I didn't want to be um, Navajo. I wasn't, you know. I would they would say, you know, are you Indian? I say no, and I would just deny it because I didn't want to get into the situation where I had to explain myself. I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't want to. I didn't want to go there. I just wanted to be normal. I just wanted them, my friends to say that he's just Dory. You know, he's just that's who he is. He's not, you know, white. He's not black. He's not Indian. He's just my friend, and that's all I wanted to be. It takes a real thick skin in order to be a person of color and then also to have to live in two worlds. At five years old, I was responsible for taking the horses to the water. And I rode those horses bareback. That was my job. So I had a sense of uh, 
a great sense of responsibility for, for the things I do. And then I had to go to placement. And I went to a place where everything that I, that I had was not acknowledged, was taken for granted, and nothing of value that I had and did was, was worth anything to them. There was also constant conflict with the beliefs, just the whole concept of the church, learning to understand that. I guess each student had different experiences, but my experience was that before we left every year to come home, they would tell us, make sure you go to church, don't go to any ceremonies like squaw dances, don't have any ceremonies. But my family always had a beauty way ceremony for each of us. It was to bless our minds and to make us strong so that we wouldn't have any problems with learning. When we used to go back, they would ask us, did you have any ceremonies? And I would have to say no. So I felt like I was violating both. I wasn't being true to my culture and I wasn't being honest with the other culture. What is culture? And when is it good and when is it bad? And what's sacred about it? My grandmother came from Denmark. She gave up her complete culture to come to America and be a member of the church. Is that wrong? Is that bad? Which culture did these children give up? Did they give up their original culture, where they had the gospel of Jesus Christ in their life? Or did they give up another culture that they came to when they left the gospel of Jesus Christ. I belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And all the teachings that it has, I firmly believe. I always felt at the beginning that, that I was not as good as white people. But as I grew up and from the things I learned from the placement and also from the things I learned from church, I finally got to the point where I didn't feel that way anymore. And I see all those positive things with my children. They can function in an Anglo world as well as the native world. And they're not afraid of either one. My name is Floyd Nelson. The church uh, has been a tremendous blessing for me. I've uh, come to understand who I am as a Native American through the Book of Mormon. Yes, we have a cursed skin to, to identify who we are, but I don't look at it as a curse. I look at it as a blessing. The Book of Mormon teaches us that the Native Americans will rise, rise up in power again. They will become a people who will finally figure out who their God is. Sometimes, even now, sometimes I kind of slip back into that 
the guilt that, that I used to feel, even though I don't go to church anymore. Sometimes I have flashbacks to, to how it used to feel when when I go through a ceremony. And, of course, it's always a relief to know that I'm an adult and I don't have to carry that in at all. We so much wanted Dory to keep his culture strong. We felt like that was very important. We never wanted to take any of that from him. In fact, when he started dating, we said, date Indian girls. You need to keep your lines pure and clean and, you know, keep that Navajo um, line pure, you know. But he didn't do that. <laughs> he, he married a white girl, so, you know. And they have beautiful children who just, you know, love them to death. But we really wanted, you know, tried to encourage him to, to date Indian girls. To this day, August is the month I dread the most because that was the month that I always left to go on placement. I wake up feeling empty that something supposed to have been there but wasn't there was denied me or taken away. It's just a feeling of something missing that I bonded with more with people that weren't of my family and they're not in my life anymore and they they, they haven't been in my life for for many years and one of the secret desires that's always been in my heart is that I would see my foster brothers or my foster sisters there at the door of my parents place because I thought they only knew maybe less than half of who I really was. But it hasn't happened to this day. Saints and Indians by Kate Davidson. The story was edited by Deborah George, and it was part of the Worlds of Difference series produced by Homelands Productions. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. The story you just heard is complicated. It's controversial. If you have something to say about it, we'd like to hear. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Now we've got a love story that takes place between here and there. In fact, it's a love story that crosses two decades, a couple of languages, and an international border. Here's Divided Families, The Hidden Cost of Migration. It was produced by Linda Lutton and Katrin Einhorn, who also straddled the border to report this story. On their 19th wedding anniversary, Rocio and Francisco wake up like always, before dawn, without an alarm, 2,000 miles away from each other. Rocio's bed is in a squat house in central West Mexico. Francisco's bed is in a small apartment he shares with five other men in Rolling Meadows. This is how they've woken up for most of their 19 years married, in separate beds, in separate countries. For Francisco and Rocio on this anniversary, it doesn't make sense to think of what they won't do, 
What they can't do. They won't kiss. They won't make love. But it hasn't always been this way. Rocio and Francisco met in Quiringuicharo, Mexico. The houses here snake in from the highway, loop around the town square, and then climb up toward the hills that surround the town. When Francisco was growing up here, the streets were dirt. His parents kept animals up a hill from the house, turkeys, pigs, cows. You never know when you're going to meet the love of your life. For Francisco, it was on his way to feed the pigs. He was just 12 or 13. He was walking up the path when he noticed a new girl outside one of the houses. Eyes the color of honey, wavy hair. There were other pretty girls. I had some friends, but she was always the most important, the one you felt more for, to have a life with. She was friendly. She laughed a lot. But it wasn't easy for them to see each other. Rocio's parents were strict. They wouldn't let us talk. We had to hide just so we could talk. We would agree on a plan for the next day. If her dad was going to be there, she would go somewhere else, offer to go to the store for any little thing. We were always looking for ways to talk. We would write letters, but he would address them to one of my friends, so my parents wouldn't know that they were from him. Then my friend would give me the letters. Rosy, you got a letter. And I'd go running over there. I fought to get her for seven years until I finally asked for her hand. Look at that. The lengths people will go to to be together. The videotape of Rocio and Francisco's wedding is choppy. The sound isn't great, but Rocio likes to watch it from time to time. In it, she sees herself and Francisco smiling. They're dancing a waltz below a tree in the plaza, the long white train of Rocio's dress moving over the dusty earth. Finally, they are together. They would live this way for just a few months. Shortly after the wedding, Rocio was expecting. Like any young couple, they were nervous. Francisco worried about the best way to care for his pregnant wife. During that time, a woman needs your support, the support of her husband. But you stop and think, you also need enough money so nothing happens. You think something could happen to her or to the baby. In Mexico, you pay cash on the spot for medical treatment. No money, no treatment. Francisco and Rocio weren't starving. They were better off than others in town. But his whole life, Francisco had been taught that a father must provide for his family. So he did what people in his town consider the responsible thing. Before the baby was born, he left. Behind a strip mall in Rolling Meadows, there's a sprawling apartment complex. Francisco lives here, along with lots of immigrants, many from his hometown. Over the years, he's learned enough English to get by. Okay, my, 
My name is Francisco. I come to Kiringuichar, Michoacán. Francisco's apartment is on the second floor. It's only two bedrooms, but six men share the place. In the living room, there are only two old office chairs and a folding chair. It's shocking that so many people can have so little stuff. But almost all of the men living here have their belongings in Kiringuichado, along with their families. Francisco doesn't spend much time here anyway. Mostly, he works. He starts his first job at 6.30 in the morning in the cafeteria of a corporate office building, making breakfast and lunch for the people who work here. He puts in nine hours at this job. We had a busy day. A lot of engineers came from other buildings and they asked for more breakfast orders. And then I had to clean up everything I served in the morning. Then he travels to his second job at a suburban gym, where he works five hours more. When he can, he picks up painting and remodeling jobs on the weekends. Once a week or so, he wires money home. When he opens his wallet, photos of his family look out at him. He sends them $200 a week, more when it's needed. You have to have the courage to at least try to improve your situation. It's not to get rich. It's so they can stay in school and things like that. Every couple years, Francisco goes back to Mexico to see his family and then pays a smuggler to get him back into the U.S. He's crossed so many times, he's lost count. I think I've come here about 15 or 16 times. I think. It's somewhere around there. No, no, 14, 13. But if you count the visits carefully, add them up, it's probably been more like eight or nine times. Maybe Francisco overestimates because he can't admit to himself that he hasn't been home more. Or maybe it seems like more because some crossings are so difficult, so intense, that Francisco remembers them as two or three. This time we really had to walk. We walked for three nights and spent two days in the hills. We ran out of water. We spent a whole day without drinking water. And the heat was really bad. Francisco knows that family separations can affect anyone. Even legal immigrants and U.S. citizens can wait years for their spouses and children to be allowed into the U.S. But at the bottom of the pile are people like him, those without papers. Going home to see his family and then returning with a smuggler through the desert will cost him at least $3,000. It could cost him his life. Still, it's a risk he takes. The truth is, you can't stand it anymore. You can't stand staying here for four years if you love your family. You depend on your family. And even though you're here, you're always thinking of them. You have to go just to see them. Two thousand miles southwest in Kiringuichero, Rocio lives in her mother-in-law's house on the town square. All day, she shouts hellos and goodbyes to people passing by. Her days start early, often before dawn. She climbs the narrow cement stairs to the roof. There, she and an uncle use a hand-cranked press to make tortillas, hundreds of them. 
Later, they'll be fried into crisp tostadas and sold from the kitchen window. At night, she sells tacos from a cart that dominates the front of the house. She wears a Chicago ribs apron, often over a red t-shirt from an auto wreckers in Bensonville. Her kids do their homework nearby, at the end of a long table the customers eat at. Rocio rarely rests. To earn a little extra, she makes announcements over a sound system that blares from her mother-in-law's roof. She charges 10 pesos to advertise that someone has killed a pig and is selling cuts. Or she announces for free that the first graders need to bring their vaccination cards to school. It's better to work, no? That way I'm not thinking about things. What good is it to say, God only knows what's going on up there. This way, look, I'm standing there selling tacos and I don't even think about it. Until the night, when I lay down, I, that's when I remember. In Spanish, there are lots of sayings about love and distance. A donde el corazón se inclina, el pie camina. Where the heart leads, the feet follow. But there's also this. Ojos que no ven, corazón que no siente. Literally, eyes that don't see, heart that doesn't feel. It's a little bit like out of sight, out of mind. Rocio knows men from Kiringuichero who've abandoned their wives and children and formed new families in Chicago. In this small town, everyone knows. What do you think of that, huh? No, that's bad. Can you imagine it? They're over there all the time and you're waiting for them here. And at the end they tell you that that's it? No, it's tough, believe me. People are gambling. There are a lot of temptations. You know there are temptations. And sometimes they fall, and sometimes they don't. That's how it is. Ah, there's no sense in saying it doesn't happen. The fear of infidelity in towns like Kiringuichero can be overwhelming. Sometimes the fear is justified. Rocio knows of a woman named Maribel. Everyone knows of her. Her husband went to Chicago to earn money to finish their house. One day he called to say he'd found someone else. Maribel felt she'd go crazy. She left her two kids with their grandmother and fled to the border. Wailing, she begged a border patrol agent to let her through, to let her find her husband. He wouldn't. Back in Kiringuichero, Maribel began to unravel. I couldn't get up. I felt such a sadness. I didn't feel like doing anything. I didn't take a shower, fix myself up. I just wanted to cry 24 hours a day. I had longer hair then, and I wanted to cut it all off myself. Looking at myself in the mirror, crying, it's very difficult. It's a heavy depression, one that kills you. For women in Kiringuichero, with their men in Chicago, Maribel and others in her situation are living, walking reminders of what can happen. There's a name for women who stay behind when their husbands go north, women like Rocio. They're called white widows. At the small public health clinic down the block from Rocio's house, Women sit in the cramped waiting room. We see a lot of women with depression. 
ranging from mild to severe. Celeste Cedeño is the doctor here. Muchas crisis nerviosas. A lot of nervous breakdowns. Some are hypochondriacs. They fake being sick because sometimes that's a way to get their husbands to come back home. It's a way to get attention. Sometimes they need affection and that's the way they show it. The drug Cedeño gives to wives of migrants is diazepam, better known in the U.S. as Valium. Cedeño also sees women for sexually transmitted diseases when their husbands return. When Gustavo López Castro, a researcher at a nearby university, looked into the mental health of women left behind, he found some startling things. Wives of migrants living in idyllic little towns like Quiringuicharo had rates of anxiety and depression greater than women in fast-paced Mexico City. He named the women's condition the Penelope Syndrome. In Homer's Odyssey, Penelope waited 20 years for Ulysses to return from the Trojan War. She spent her days and nights weaving and unweaving her shroud and crying. But Rocio isn't the type of person to spend much time brooding. What good does it do for me to cry? Hmm? You're in the same place afterwards as before. I cry, then I wipe my tears away. And I keep going. But things get to her sometimes. Like when Francisco's brothers and sisters, who live in the U.S. legally, come to visit. They thank her for taking care of their mother, then they go back to their families in the U.S. Rocio can't get a tourist visa to visit the United States because the government screens out people it thinks will stay. Sometimes Rocio worries. There have to be women there. It's not like there's not going to be women there. It's not like you can say, no, no, don't look at any women, only look at the men. Francisco says there have been misunderstandings over the years. He says the key to keeping their relationship healthy is communication. But rumors cross the border freely. So do videos and photos. Some might feature your husband dancing with someone else. Since we're up here by ourselves, they think that... But I wish she could come and see how we live here. And I wish she could see how we work, so she wouldn't feel insecure or believe what people say. When young people get married at Kiringuichero's church, Our Lady of Guadalupe, the priest gives them some advice. In prenuptial talks, I always emphasize, I really, really emphasize, look, you are going to marry him? Follow him. Don't leave him alone. That's the advice I give them. Go with him. He's your husband. Researchers say that the conditions in which people are migrating worldwide have become harsher, even in the last decade. Borders are harder to cross, return visits home more difficult, and migrants are exposed to longer periods without their families. The stress can be more than humans are able to adapt to. Francisco's felt it. You're stressed, your nerves are on end. It affects you that you're so far away. But you have to know how to control it. Some men can't. The term Penelope syndrome was inspired by a condition that psychologists and researchers in Spain have identified as the Ulysses syndrome in immigrants there, mainly men. It's characterized by depression and mental disorders. The principal stressor, loneliness and separation from loved ones. (laughs) 
Francisco didn't make it home to meet his first child, Yvonne, until she was a year and a half. He would go on to miss nearly every one of her birthdays. It's not bitterness. It's not anger. Maybe it's resentment. Yvonne is 18 now. He went out of necessity, but you still feel sad. You see other kids who live with their dads, not most kids, but you feel bad seeing your girlfriends with their dads, and you're there with just your mom. In Mexico, a girl's 15th birthday is almost as big as her wedding. Francisco didn't go back for Yvonne's. Instead, he bought her a ring at a jewelry store in Carpentersville and sent it home with a friend. It's one of Yvonne's fondest memories of her father, and he wasn't even there. The children of men who've gone up north have complicated relationships with their dads. They long for them, but when their dads come home, it's not always easy. The young ones are suddenly banned from their mother's bed. The older ones collide with new rules and expectations. This is Francisco's only son, Paco. He's 16 now. His voice cracks. He'll have to figure out how to shave soon. One time, when he'd been here for about a week, he went to town to get some things we needed. I told him to bring me some toys, and he didn't bring me anything. Then he asked me to carry something into the house that he had bought, and I didn't understand him. He had a belt, and he hit me. <laughs> it was bad because I never dealt with him, only with my mom and my grandma. I didn't speak to him. I was mad. In Kidding Wichado, the principal of the school estimates that half of his 350 students have fathers or mothers or both in the U.S. From an early age, children understand why their parents aren't with them. But you get Because he wants to work so he could send us money. This is Lupita, Francisco's youngest. She's 10. When he came one time, he had a big pillow fight. I always remember him. I feel bad because he's not here. But kids' emotions can run the gamut. Lupita's sister, Alejandra, is 11. She prefers not to talk about her dad. I don't know much about him, she says. Alejandra can only remember two visits from her dad in her entire life, once when she was eight and once last year when she was ten. Sometimes you miss the best parts. You still hug them and everything, but not like when they were small, when they were crawling and running around. Now they're big, and I tell my wife, you're the lucky one because you've gotten to enjoy them. And me, I love them and they love me, but I wish I could have enjoyed them while they were little. Kids' relationships with their absent parents are built on a few memories and lots of telephone calls. A day before Paco's 16th birthday, Francisco calls from Rolling Meadows to see what his son needs or wants for his birthday. I don't know, Dad. I don't know. Whatever's fine. When are you going to send Mom money so we can go to town? I kind of feel like buying something, but I don't know. One thing I haven't done is put minutes on my cell phone. Mom says she can't right now. Eventually, Paco tells his dad he wants a pair of pants, the baggy kind that kids from the U.S. wear. It's a simple request, but one of many that will keep Francisco working in Rolling Meadows.
During Francisco's last visit to the United States, he earned enough money to finally finish the house in Kiringuicharo. It's a modest home, one story, three bedrooms. It sits on a little hill about a 10-minute walk from the plaza. Inside, everything is new. There are matching headboards and dressers in every room. This is the living room. Look at the bathroom. This is my bathroom. Look. As much as she loves the house, Rocio hasn't moved in. She still lives at her mother-in-law's, where Rocio and her four kids sleep in a single bedroom. Partly, it's because she's caring for her mother-in-law, who's sick. But mostly, it's because she can't stand to move in. This house reminds her of him. Why do you think I don't move in? The kids go out and I'm there all alone. I lay down and I say, oh God, all the time like this? No. That's why sometimes I get fed up. Sometimes I get mad at him and I tell him, I'm going to go to Chicago. No, but I'm just saying that. I can't make myself go. You think I can leave my kids behind? I can't do it. I'm just saying it to badger him. Francisco and Rocio had agreed. He'd come back to Kiringuichara when the house was finished. But the family is no closer to being together. In the last few months, Francisco's mom has been in and out of the hospital. He's been sending money home for her treatment, thousands of dollars in the last six months. His son Paco's in high school, and it costs money to keep him there. And they want one more thing before Francisco comes home. A van. Well, that's what he went for this time, to bring back a van. We've got the white car, but we don't all fit in there. So what he wants to do is to bring a van down, so the whole family can fit. You know, you can fit a lot of people in the van. Francisco wants to move back as soon as he can get a few thousand dollars together, a safety net for life in Mexico. But sometimes he thinks he'll end up in Chicago until he can't work anymore. On his 19th wedding anniversary, like every other day, Francisco has a couple hours off between jobs. This is the time he usually calls Mexico. Rocio has downtime, too. She's sitting at her mother-in-law's kitchen table. I'm waiting to see if the phone rings. And nothing. She wonders if Francisco will remember their anniversary. Francisco gets home, watches some TV, takes a shower. He warms tortillas on the stove, takes some beef and red chili sauce out of the fridge and slides it into the microwave. As he's eating, he glances up at a TV news report on immigration raids at McDonald's. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't call Rocio. I'm still hoping the phone will ring. But no, I think I'm going to have to call him. I keep thinking... Let's see if he remembers, because he told me, I'll talk to you again. But, no. (laughs) Living with your partner, there are lots of ways to signal anger or disappointment. You can narrow your eyes, stop talking, stomp around. You can drop hints. It's a lot harder from 2,000 miles. Maybe Francisco didn't call because he was being recorded all day for this documentary. Maybe he just forgot. At 10.30 p.m., Rocio and the rest of the family pull the taco griddles into the house. At 11, Francisco drives home from work. Somewhere around midnight, they get into their separate beds, the first night of their 20th year together. When you ask people from Kiringuichado about their decision to live the way they do, many say this, Así es, ni modo. That's how it is. What are we going to do? 
It's a statement that sums up all the things that are beyond their control. The $15 a day wages in Kidding Wichado, the price of pants and medicine and a house, the pull of the North on the men, on the families. Over the years, maybe Francisco and Rocio have told themselves that it's worth it, that they're living apart so their children can get a better footing in the world, so their children won't have to live this way when they fall in love. A year ago, Francisco returned to Mexico for the wedding of his firstborn daughter, Yvonne. The last time he'd seen Yvonne, she was 14. Now, she was getting married. Francisco stayed in Quiringuichero December, January, February. When the time came to head for Rolling Meadows, his new son-in-law, Pancho, approached him. He just asked if he could come with us. I never said, let's go. It was his decision. He wanted to come. And maybe must be the same thing as with me. Maybe he wants a better life, too, like me. Pancho and Yvonne had been getting by fine in Quiringuichero, but soon after the wedding, Yvonne got pregnant. We've got more expenses right now, with the doctor and the medicine and the birth and everything. Last month, Pancho and Yvonne's daughter, Maria Fernanda, arrived. Yvonne's goals are the same as everyone's here. Maybe they're the same as everyone's everywhere. She wants a house, somewhere she can live with Pancho, something she can leave to her children. She doesn't want to be poor. She thinks her life might turn out to be very much like her mother's. It's not that I want things to be that way, but I'm used to this, that the men go, come back, you see them, and then they leave again. She's talked to Pancho about how long he might stay in Chicago. He doesn't think he'll stay long. That's what he says. Who knows? He says he'll just be there until we get through this, then he'll come back. To Rocio, it sounds so familiar. Maybe it's the same talk she and Francisco had 19 years ago. All that time apart, and it still hasn't been enough to keep Yvonne from the same life. Rocio says, está de pensar. It's something to think about. That was Divided Families, The Hidden Cost of Migration by Linda Lutton and Katrin Einhorn. It was part of the Chicago Matters documentary series on immigration, which aired on Chicago Public Radio in 2007. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Delaney Hall, filling in for Gwen Maxi. The program is curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. The Third Coast Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and sponsorship from American Airlines, Chicago's Navy Pier, and ExploreChicago.org, the city of Chicago's official tourism website. The festival is produced in partnership with Chicago Public Radio and the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.